Welcome back to Taxpayer Talk. Our guest today was formerly an advisor to former Prime Minister Sir John Key. She then worked for five years at Fonterra before entering Parliament as a National List MP in 2017. Since then, she has developed a national profile and flown through the party ranks to 16th on the list last time I checked. A strong advocate against the current government and for Kiwi families, it's a pleasure to welcome Nicola Willis onto the podcast. Nicola, thank you for coming. Good morning. Great to be here. Quite a lot of movement in New Zealand's uh, politics around the housing uh, market. Uh, we're in a bit of a crisis at the moment. Um, some of the more controversial changes that the Labor government has made have been uh, changes to the Brightline test and interest deductibility. Uh, what tangible changes do you think they've had so far, if any? Well, look, it is a crisis. And the sad thing is Labor came to power on a strong commitment that they would solve. New Zealand's housing challenges. Mm -hmm. And in fact, by almost every measure, things have got significantly worse since Labor came to power. Uh, you know, house price to income ratios, the number of people on the state house waiting list, which has quadrupled, uh, the number of people living in emergency housing. There are now more than 4,000 families raising their kids in those circumstances. So it has got worse, but in some ways it's no surprise because... Labor's simplistic solution to housing initially was we'll build 100,000 Kiwi-built homes. Now, that was a joke at the time, but for some reason people took it seriously uh, and that's the promise that Ardern came to power on. Now, of course, here we are almost four years later and there's just over 1,000 Kiwi-built homes that have been built, so uh, well off the 17,000 target that they had for this point. So then what does Labor do? realising that it has failed on its big promise and that Kiwi Build's not going to do it, well, it has to find someone to blame. And it's decided that actually the first people they tried to blame were, of course, uh, foreign investors, but that didn't actually work. That didn't address the house price issues. So now they've tried to blame mum and dad landlords. They've dreamed up a new name for them. You're now not someone who's saving hard for your nest egg uh, and deciding to provide a house to tenants. Nope, you're a speculator. And uh, look, I just think that's wrong. The two specific initiatives that they've proposed, the first is a breach of an election promise, the extension of the Bright Line test to 10 years uh, from the two years it was when National was in government and the five years that Labor had previously increased it to. Look, really what that is, is it's a capital gains tax by stealth. It is the Labor government wanting to create a tax on people before the election, they promised they wouldn't do that. Grant Robertson was very specific that he wouldn't be extending the Bright Line test, and yet they're doing it. Will that build new houses? No, of course it won't. It won't add any more houses, and in fact might put some people off investing in new houses. The second thing, interest deductibility. What they've done there is just really Mickey Mouse, because a core principle of taxation is that you tax profit, not revenue. And instead what Labor are doing here is they're saying actually just for this class of asset, for housing, you are not allowed to deduct your interest payments. That is a complete uh, unprincipled move. And also in a policy sense, uh, could well add costs uh, to the renters that most need help right now. Uh, so pretty perverse. Uh, they've been warned by their own officials that that change could increase churn in the housing market. That is uh, landlords selling up, which is bad if you're a tenant because you're going to have to pay for moving costs, you might struggle to find a new home. So look, National absolutely opposes those two initiatives of Labor and I'll promise you this, neither of those initiatives will get a single extra house built and that's what we should measure housing policy by. All right, well, 
In that case, both sides acknowledge that we're in a housing crisis. What does... The, I think there are two parts to this question, but I'll put the first part to you now. And that is, what, what's National going to do? Because you seem to... This is a su- supply-side issue for National. Mm-hmm. So what's, what change are you going to make? You know, what are you going to do differently? So, so National's argument has been actually for some years that one of the major challenges that New Zealand has that has prevented housing supply keeping up with demand is our planning framework. It's those three ugly letters, R-M-A. And we have for many years said, look, we need to uh, reform that piece of legislation. It's our position now that we should, in fact, repeal it altogether and replace it. Labor resisted that for years and years, saying that it wasn't the problem. They've now come around to it and said, oh, yeah, you know what, National, you were right. That is stopping houses being built. It's adding cost and it's slowing things down, so we will replace it. We are very sceptical of how good a job Labor will do of replacing it. But actually, more to the point, any replacement won't be in effect until 2024 at the earliest. National says that's far too long to wait. So we have proposed a suite of interim urgent measures to respond to the housing emergency right now. And what we're saying is let's do something similar to what New Zealand did following the Canterbury earthquakes, which was that we essentially suspended parts of the RMA. We required uh, the councils in that region to facilitate making more space available for housing, both through intensification and allowing for land to be rezoned for greenfield subdivisions, uh, and to reduce the compliance and red tape and RMA processes associated with building new houses. And what we saw was resource consents took off, house building took off, and actually house prices relative to incomes levelled off in Canterbury, whereas Mm. in the rest of the country they continue to take off. So we've said, let's take what worked in Canterbury Let's do it nationwide. Let's not wait till 2024. So specifically, what would be three changes that you would label in this in your new your natural and built environments or your new RMA, however you'd like to put it? What would be the three specific changes that you're going to take from Christchurch or from globally and apply? So specifically, in mm-hmm. our urgent measures bill, which we've put forward, people can go online and have a look at it. It's a 50-page piece of legislation. But specifically what it does is, first of all, it says to councils, you are required to zone for your population growth for the next 30 years because we are sick of councils coming up with plans that only allow for housing for the next 10 years and eke out land release over too long a period of time. So it would require councils to do that. Mm -hmm. Second, what it would do is it would suspend the long, arduous appeal process that currently exists when a council changes its planning. Mm -hmm. When they change their plan at the moment, you can end up in the environment court, you can end up in court for years on end. So it reduces that down to about a six to nine month process by putting in a a hearings panel. And third of all, what it does is it says that where people are wanting to apply for a resource consent uh, for housing right now, there should be far fewer circumstances where that's needed. So minimising the circumstances under which a consent is required and instead having a proactive approach that says, in general, councils say yes to housing. Uh, personally, um, are you a NIMBY or a YIMBY? Or I'm a YIMBY. I am a YIMBY. I just think that you can't look at New Zealand right now relative to the rest of the world where we have the most out-of-whack house prices to uh, incomes, despite having a huge land mass. You know, less than 1% of New Zealand is in housing right now. You can't look at that and say, oh, well, um, there's everything's gone perfectly well in our planning law. No, it hasn't. We have made it far too easy as a country for people to say no to housing. 
we need to make it a lot easier to say yes to housing. And so what are your thoughts on uh, a lot of uh, people that I've spoken to see incentives as a huge issue for councils currently um, because they have to bear the cost of new infrastructure and they literally can't afford to do it um, from Tauranga originally and you can drive down towards Papamoa and there are rows and rows of greenfield suburbs that have no houses on them because you can't put any infrastructure in there. So what are your thoughts on a policy like X where you split the GST? between well, central government and local government? Well, to your point, mm-hmm. do I think that infrastructure matters mm-hmm. to our housing crisis? Absolutely. Yes, I do. And I do think that we need to have better incentives for councils to provide the infrastructure needed for growth. Uh-huh. You gave me three points earlier on what we would do. Yep. Let me come to the fourth bit, which is that we have proposed that actually we, there needs to be a very simple mechanism for councils so that they see a carrot. If they're going to zone for more housing, if they're getting more people building, then they will be rewarded. We've proposed that for every additional home that a council consents above its historic average, there should be a $50,000 payment, mm-hmm. full stop. Because we want to move from a situation where councils see a subdivision proposal and think, oh my gosh, cost – and instead look at that subdivision proposal and start tallying up how much extra income they could get if they said yes. So we acknowledge that that's an interim solution. That's what we think is needed right now. But over the medium term, we would like to move to a system in which local government does look forward to infrastructure financing when they're allowing for development, because clearly that system hasn't worked in New Zealand to date. And I I guess the the final end that we've been kind of getting around here is this is going to take a long time. No matter uh, how fast and what laws are passed to encourage building of houses, it's going to take quite a while to get us out of the crisis that we're in now. So let's say national, it's more of an interest question, but let's say national gets into government in 2023. How do you deal with a political situation where you're facing a very long-term issue with large political ramifications for most Kiwis, and you're not going to be able to fix it Overnight, uh, you, you could pass the legislation as soon as you wanted, but the ramifications aren't going to be felt for a very long time. How do, as a, as a party or as a political entity, do you deal with such a long-term problem? Well, first of all, mm-hmm. you can't promise things that can't be delivered, and mm-hmm. that is simply gimmicks. And I do think that Labor's promise of 100,000 Kiwi-built homes was a hoax. It was a public policy disaster, And National won't take that approach. We will look at the systematic structural issues that have held back housing supply. Mm -hmm. But actually, I would argue that if you're very clear about what you want to achieve from day one, you can deliver quickly. Actually, I've met with uh, housing developers across the country, including, for example, Williams Corporation, who are based out of Christchurch, who tell me that if the red tape's taken out of the way, if they have the land available, they can get up a house, a duplex, in five months. So the problem here isn't necessarily that people can't build quickly, it's that you do have to allow for that planning environment. So we would very quickly be introducing measures to cut through the red tape. I'd argue that part of the reason Labor is where they are now, which is a three and a half years into office and the problem a lot worse, is they didn't have a clear idea of the structural reform required to bring new housing on. Now I fully acknowledge we need successive years where there are more houses being built for this problem to be addressed in the medium term. But what you can expect from National is that we will come into government on day one with a very clear set of proposals to get things started so that we're not waiting for working groups, reviews, inquiries before we actually work out what to do about things. All right, now to play devil's advocate for a moment, 
uh, let's take Williams Corp, for example. Um, they've got quite a, a reputation, particularly here in Wellington in the heart. Let's say National cuts all the red tape. What's to stop us from facing a leaky homes crisis or something similar 10, 15 years down the track? I think it's important to note that when I'm talking red tape, I'm mm -hmm. primarily talking about the Resource Management Act, which of course has no bearing on building standards. And it's absolutely crucial that we continue with strong building standards in New Zealand and uh, National doesn't argue against that. So uh, I would say that that remains important. But the other thing I'd say is if you look at the delays in uh, building consents and the issues with inspections, none of that is actually builders or developers complaining about the quality standards they have to meet. Mm -hmm. It's more the delays in getting the inspection and getting the code of compliance and getting the council officer out to the house. So I think we can address that without lowering standards. And it's my view that houses that are being built should be built to be durable, to be sustainable, because we don't want to be having to repair and rebuild them. That's a nightmare for everyone. And now to the hard question, I suppose, uh, and that is given these failures on behalf of Labour, uh, Kiwi Build, um, Megan Wood's now infamous 12 houses announcement, it's an issue that touches every Kiwi, and Kiwis do seem to be caring. Uh, in the latest poll that came out uh, last night, uh, Nash, uh, Labour had dropped uh, uh, 9%, but National doesn't appear to be picking up the slack in that regard. Why do you think that is? Well, that poll showed that Labour had dropped almost 10 points, actually, and what that tells you is that people are rapidly losing confidence in the government. They're losing support for what they're doing, and I think that is partly because they're not delivering on the things they promised and partly because they're coming across as increasingly complacent and arrogant. Look, National's doing a good job. We are the ones drawing attention to the government's failures, holding them accountable where they're not delivering. And our Demand the Debate campaign has really focused in on that. Uh, and I think it's no surprise that as a result we are seeing uh, support for the government dropping. The, the question then is how do we convert that into high levels of support for us? And I'm really focused on the trend here. And the trend is a positive one. We gained in that poll. I'd like to see us continuing to gain in future polls. And what I uh, will tell you is that our caucus are absolutely focused on the work we have ahead of us. We are working on policy. We know voters want to see our alternative vision. We know increasing numbers of people want to see a national-led government. And we'll be coming up with the action plans to ensure that if we're elected, we'll fix some of New Zealand's problems much quicker than Labor is able to. Well, let's move on to that idea of a national conversation now. We've both been a member of Victoria University Wellington's uh, debating society, and uh, National is currently pushing for public debates on a variety of issues. I've always been struck that this is actually a, a really good idea. New Zealand could benefit from more of a debating culture, um, and the free market of ideas really helps to have to have your ideas challenged by someone who's informed on the argument. What sort of uh, debates would you like to see in New Zealand politics currently? Well, first, here's here here to the uh, Vic Debating Society. It's always nice to come across a fellow geek. Um, I often say that while I ostensibly majored in English Lit at university, my real major uh, was the Victoria Debating Society, um, mm -hmm. and it's where I met my husband and uh, where I had a lot of good times and where I, still a lot of my great friends um, I met through that debating society. So like you, I am a big fan of informed discussion and what can be gained by good debates. And I think what we need to do to support that as politicians is actually argue the case, not just let the government's view of the world be the one 
uh, that resonates, but actually to argue back, to provide alternative evidence and to make sure that the media are drawing attention to those issues too. So as an opposition, we'll make no apologies uh, for continuing to draw attention to issues that the government often doesn't want to talk about. I think the other thing we can do to encourage debate is encourage all Kiwis, uh, whether you're at university, whether you're working, whether you're a, a parent, to, to really listen in to what's happening in politics. And part of our job as politicians is to make the public policy decisions that are being made at Parliament relevant to people's everyday lives. But more specifically, what would you like to see debated? One or two issues? Oh, which two issues would I like to see? Oh, well, uh, I would... Uh, really like to see this issue of how we can allow more housing zoned. That's, mm -hmm. you know, it should be of no surprise to you. I'm our housing spokesperson. That issue really matters to me. Um, the second issue that I'm pretty focused on, uh, again, due to my portfolio interests, I'm our associate economic development spokesperson. I think we need to be thinking right now as a country about how we are going to allow skilled workers into the country. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19 notwithstanding because it has been to date that we've had a bit of a hermit kingdom approach and, and that's because we've been prioritising safety and health. But looking ahead, we're going to have to get to a situation where we can have quarantine facilities, we can protect people from contagion, but we can also get in some of the skilled workers we need to have our economy growing, to have incomes lifting. Now, this brings me to another point, as you just touched on um, skilled immigration there, and that's been an issue that your colleague um, Erica, yep, Erica has been pushing yeah. very, very hard. And uh, along with yourself and Chris Bishop and the, the liberal wing of the party, um, you uh, as a group seem to be energised, you're focused, you're lasered into holding the government to account on these very specific issues. You would almost, from the outside, seem to be a separate unit within the party, um, whilst the rest of the party appears to be quite reactive in how it's approaching uh, policy issues. How would you, how would, would you agree with that statement? Not what, at what all. Do you see? Not, Not at all. all. No, I would, I would totally... Um I totally disagree. Well, firstly, because, sorry, first, I really dislike that grammatical thing at firstly. It's just wrong, people. It's first. First, uh, because, look, National doesn't have factions. We don't uh, formally divide our caucus into different wings, and this idea that we do exists in the heads of commentators uh -huh. but doesn't exist in the heads of people in caucus. What we have is discussions on conscience issues. We do have a broad church in which we allow our members to express their views. So you saw us voting different ways, for example, on abortion, end-of-life choice. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the work that me, Erica, Chris Bishop, Simeon Brown are doing as younger members, mm -hmm. yep, we are working really hard to draw the government to account, but equally so are our more senior colleagues across the front bench. So I'd put to you that it's great to have uh, new talent coming through and to have attention on our portfolios. We mm -hmm. welcome that, but actually that's widespread. That's across the board. So back to debating for a moment. I've always thought it's a, it's a wonderful skill to have, particularly for the politically minded. It's an excellent way, much in the same way that essay writings, uh, essay practices for your writing, uh, debating is for your oral delivery. It allows you to uh, formulate and organise your thoughts and deliver them and uh, attack the other person's position in, in an organised and methodical manner. If you had to give a, some sort of spiel to high schoolers, to people who have just arrived at university, uh, parents of those people, about why their children or they should be involved in debating, what, what would you say? 
Well, I think you've articulated it very well, which is organising your thoughts, providing argumentation and making a convincing case. Ultimately, I think, to win arguments, what people need to see is that someone has a genuine passion for the subject and that they are genuinely plugged into the concern they're seeking to address. Uh, But it helps the case if you can organise it well, if you can summarise your arguments and your evidence. And debating just hones that ability. What I see in the best speakers in Parliament uh, and across the community is people who are able to tell a story about something in a way that brings an issue to life, but then ground that issue with facts, evidence, numbers. And debating really installs that discipline uh, because you are being counted point for point on how you address the issues. And it does make you think uh, about how you frame issues, how you define the terms of a debate, uh, what you think the tests are by which it will be won. Uh, And having that organised approach is something that's useful in life. Uh, You don't have to be a lawyer to to use debating, actually, in any workplace and arguably any family. uh, There are going to be issues where people are on different sides of the debate, and if you can articulate yourself well, uh, you're more likely to get your way, uh, which sometimes is a good thing. Indeed. On this, uh, further to the issue of debating, question time in the House. It gets heated, uh, quite a bit of debate going on in there. Now, I've got to ask, what's it like personally? Uh, there have been more than a few instances. We play question time in the office. Oh, good people. More, more of us need to do that. It's good stuff. No, it is good stuff. What's it like to stand there and have a real killer knockdown point um, and just to have it uh, denied away or failed to be reflected on uh, by the government? It's very frustrating. So you'll be aware that when we ask questions, ministers are required to address question but they are not required to answer it so what that means is if you ask for something uh, in a number or factual they're not actually required to give that to you they can just sort of blur on meaninglessly about the topic in general and you know a good example of that is I have asked um, the Minister for Public Housing on a couple of occasions will she put a target on when the state house waiting list will be reduced by Mm -hmm. and she will just waffle on uh, and has never provided actually a target date for that so look it's frustrating but I'm a big believer that you play by the rules of the game that you're playing you don't debate against the referee you don't debate against the rules you just get on with it and what we can still use question time to do really effectively Mm -hmm. is draw attention to issues and I think New Zealanders are smart people who are listening to parliament Mm -hmm. notice when ministers obfuscate and don't actually answer questions and I often get feedback from people who listen into question time to say exactly that. Well, you've just said playing by the rules. Would you like to see some of those rules changed? I've watched a bit of the British question time. Um, Questions aren't published beforehand as they're required to be here. Uh, Questions to the Prime Minister are their own segment of an hour long. Uh, Would you prefer to see a method like that? I know it perhaps might be easier to say yes in opposition than it would be in government, but would you like to see some sort of changes along those lines? Well, it's been very interesting because one of the changes in this parliament that has happened as a result of discussions uh, between members is that we've introduced this new idea of ministerial questions in response to an emerging event. So, for example, when a COVID uh, alert level change has been introduced or a big change, uh, our speakers are able to ask back and forth questions with the minister. Similarly, during the uh, committee stages of a debate, we can have that back back and forth. Uh, And also we now have um, other sections in the House where we're able to have a back-and-forth debate with ministers, including during the estimates process, for example. And what I'd say is that that is much more constructive when uh, you actually get 
the answer from the minister and if you're not quite satisfied that it's delivered what you want, you can ask again straight away. Because it means that instead of everyone being reduced to political rhetoric, mm -hmm. you actually get some genuine inquiry going on. So I'd welcome opportunities to further that approach because I tell you what, it's really frustrating when you're at select committee and you've got a minister before you for ostensibly an hour. But actually, at least half of that is taken with them making patsy statements and the opposition sorry, their government members asking them patsy questions. That doesn't actually further public debate or discourse at all, in my view. It would be much better for the opposition to have multiple question opportunities to really explore a line of inquiry. Well, that's, always, that's an interesting approach because you can, you, know, you can go down one of two paths and you can say it would be more advantageous uh, if the opposition had more questions because they're going to hold the government to account. But the reality is, is we also... Um, live in a hyper-whipped um, time uh, and parties, MPs don't cross their parties on many matters and when they do, uh, generally doesn't bode well for them. Do you think that's an issue for our politics? Well, certainly I have never been constrained uh, mm -hmm. in my ability to ask questions of the government. The whipping system has never meant that that has occurred. Uh, in fact, but in my point... Yeah, that's right. So I think for the opposition, um, actually part of the accountability of having a spokesperson role is that you're expected to exercise judgment and your caucus really gives you backing to, to go wide in how you do that. Mm -hmm. But I think for government MPs, yeah, it, it can be a bit ridiculous some days when you see the patsy questions that are put forward. And my view is that they can be a bit of a waste of time. And I prefer to see Parliament genuinely being used as a place to hold the executive to account. Um, and I would w w welcome some reforms in the processes of Parliament that would encourage a bit more of that. And yep, people will say, well, what about when you're in government? You know, would you really want it? And I'd say, well, actually, I do want my ministerial colleagues to be on their toes, held to account by the public, and knowing that they can't get away with stuff. Actually, that's good for New Zealand. Well, Nicola Willis, thank you very much for coming on Taxpayer Talk. Great to be with you.